Hi, I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg, and we're the co-founders of The Skim. Welcome to our podcast, Skimmed from the Couch. On every episode, we invite smart, inspiring, successful women to chat candidly about what it takes to get to the top and then what it's like when you actually get there. So this is a podcast about the real stuff, the crappy days, the bad advice, the first big career win, and the people who are there for the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We started the skim from a couch, and we have only one rule on this one, no BS. So please join us in welcoming Kat Cole to our couch. Kat started out as a waitress at Hooters to help support her family while she was in high school. In her second year of college, she decided to drop out and turn that side hustle at Hooters into her main hustle. She went to work for the corporate side, and by the time she was 19, she was helping Hooters open restaurants around the world. A few years later, she was a VP at the company. Kat got a business degree and then took over as president of Cinnabon, Yum. Um, where she helped grow the company to a billion-dollar brand. Today, Kat is the president and COO of Focus Brands, the parent of companies like Cinnabon and Auntie Anne's Pretzels. Um, welcome to the cat, or <laughs> welcome to the couch, Cat. I have one question: Did you bring us samples? I did not. What? <laughs> well, now I'm really. You wouldn't be hungry. able to talk. You would be obsessed with the food. <laughs> that is true. It wouldn't go well. Yes. So <laughs> let's start. Um, you know, normally we we try to kind of jump right in of, you know, we've already talked about your accolades. Let's dive into like what is it like to to be in your current job and mentorship and where you have your kind of stressful moments. But your story particularly gets me. Um, <laughs> and so I really, really want to kind of go back to how did how, like walk us through you walk into Hooters to get a job. How old are you? Why did you go there? Like just walk us through this journey. Yeah. Um, what I- was the interview process like? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they recruited me. Um, so I had been working since I was 15 in malls. Uh, we left my dad when I was nine. He was an alcoholic, and I'm the oldest of three girls, and my mom just decided that she couldn't continue, despite the fact that my dad had a good job, to put us in that situation. And so she had to work three jobs. She fed us on a, bo- a food budget uh, of $10 a week for three years, and so I had to start working early. And I worked in a mall Where'd at you a place, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, I worked in a mall selling clothes at just a cool clothing store called The Body Shop, which was fabulous in the 90s. And uh, I got recruited. There were these people called Hooters Recruiters, and they literally (laughs) had business cards with owls on them. And they would go to retail because you had young women who were good at salesmanship, who had no problem interacting with people, and it was a smart place to go recruit. And so they recruited me, but I was too young to work there. And growing up in Jacksonville, Hooters started there. So it had been around since almost I had been alive. It just wasn't a big deal. It didn't have a lot of edge or controversy around it. I mean, it's Florida. People were less on the beach. It was just not a big deal. (laughs) Uh, I didn't realize at least what a big deal it was socially in the adult world. But uh, with professionals, you know, who would think it was lesser than to work there, it was just a restaurant. And I thought it was super cool that I got recruited to go work there. And so when I turned 17, I was old enough to be a hostess. And so I went in after being recruited multiple times, and they offered me a hostess job. And so I became a hostess. And then at 18, uh, I became a waitress. So that's that's how it went down. And what was the decision like to drop out of college to keep working at Hooters? So. When I was 18 working at Hooters, I graduated high school. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I was an engineering major. The plan was to get my engineering degree and then go on to law school. And so that was the jam. I was going to class. I was a waitress. And, but then I started taking on other responsibilities in the restaurant. The cooks quit one day. And so I went back and 
ran the line and the bartender had to go home early. So I learned how to bartend. And the same thing happened with managers. So by the time I was um, six months into the job, I knew how to run a restaurant. It wasn't my goal. It wasn't my career aspiration. I just wanted to be helpful. Uh, and it was a little bit self-serving. I wanted to pick up extra shifts. And so I did. And by the time I was 19, I had been asked to go open restaurants around the world. Sydney, Australia was my first ever so opening. that's like, let's just pause there. <laughs> a lot of people, it sounds like they were recruiting a lot of people. A lot of people were waitresses there. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people got the offer to go to Sydney, Australia and open up restaurants and, be, and become a VP. Yeah. Wh- why did you get it? What were you doing that set you apart? One was I was a smart bet. I was an efficient person to send because I could train any job in the restaurant. I had worked every job. I wasn't just a front of house server trainer or just a kitchen trainer. You could send one person and get a very high return on that labor. Uh, And so I was a smart send. Uh, I didn't know that I was building a resume. I didn't know we were growing internationally. I was just doing it to be helpful. I also was already a trainer in the restaurant, which is super normal. They pick the best employees. They ask you to help train other new hires. And it happens everywhere. But I loved it. And I offered to do it all the time. I taught classes. I traveled to other restaurants that needed help. And again, it was self-serving because I could pick up more shifts. But it was also my desire to genuinely help and learn. And that's what set me up to be so visible as someone who should be offered to be a part of the team. Did your mom get that there was something special about what was about to happen to your career? No, God, no. I mean, she just thought I was working in a restaurant, paying my way through college. And she was just very proud that I was in college. And so back to how all that led to me dropping out of college. When I opened the first restaurant in Australia, by the way, I'd never been on a plane. I didn't have a passport. I flew to Miami to get my passport uh, expedited after they asked me. And I thought it was a once in a lifetime experience. So I came back and I made up my classes, but then they asked me to go to Mexico and launch the first franchise in Central America. And so I did that, was gone for 40 days, came back, made up my classes. And fast forward a year, I was failing because I was never there. I had launched six franchise locations on four continents, and that's 30 to 40 days that's at a time. Insane. By the time you were what? I was 20. 20. Oh my yeah. God. I was basically on the road constantly. So there was no time to make up classes, so I was failing. So I went back to school and they said, either you stop not only traveling, but you stop working, and you come here full time to make up all of your classes, or you're going to fail. And I said, I quit. Have you ever gone back to uh, that school and given a speech or talk? Or <laughs> no, I've actually done a lot of commencement speeches. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have given um, the commencement speech at the university where I have my master's. So I have a master's without a bachelor's. So I found out there was a way to yeah, so I want, do that. <laughs> I, I want to talk about that because that is, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And one of the first questions I had was like, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. When So you ultimately felt like the experience that you got working was going to be more important than getting your BA. Yeah, you know, I think I was just, I was traveling around the world at the age of 20, and that was so much more fun than going to school. And I was really fucking good at it. I mean, it, it's chaos, opening businesses, period. Did you know you were good at it? Or? I did, yeah. Um, it became pretty obvious. One, mm-hmm. the restaurants opened successfully. Two, the teams that would travel around, start, uh, stayed in touch with me, would give me feedback. And I worked with other people who had been doing it much longer, but who really struggled with the stress and the chaos of it. And that was so my jam. That was my happy how did, place. How did you get their respect? How did you get them to listen to you? Mm-hmm. You were a kid. It's really interesting. So the first opening, I remember Australia. First, every opening I did, 1920, and I went on to do it well into my 20s and then building teams that did it. Um, I was by far the youngest person in almost all mm-hmm. cases. And every opening in every country is a different team. So I often tell people, try to imagine doing your job 
every month with a completely different team and think about how well that would go. And so part of the way I learned to earn trust was I paid attention to the truth, which is the brutal leadership mirror that you are confronted with when you have to keep doing a job with a new team because they don't know you, they don't know what you mean, they don't know your good intentions behind it. You just are what you are in that moment. And so after two or three openings, the things that consistently went wrong, I had to acknowledge the only common denominator was me. And the things that consistently went right, I had to celebrate that I was likely the person that was driving that. And so I learned a few things to build trust in those scenarios very quickly. One uh, is to just be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I would share my story. I always have since I was very young. I've been comfortable with it and always well rewarded for it. And sharing my story, no matter the culture or the group, helped others feel comfortable doing the same or at least seeing me as a person and not this boss coming in. So about two years into us doing the skim, I was invited to a dinner um, in downtown Manhattan uh, where, where I was definitely the least important person in the room. And it was from a, a female mentor of ours. And you were at the dinner. And I remember texting Danielle under the table being like, I just met the most fascinating person. Like, holy shit, she is just very intense. And like, we have to learn from her. And I remember we like, it, this. it was like a you know, 15-person dinner and people like went around the table and, you know, we were asking honest questions about being founders and entrepreneurs and um, management. And I asked you because you came off so confident. I was like, do you ever crack? Like, do you ever go into your office and just like, who, like, where do you freak out? And when I'm listening to you talk like this, like you are 20 years old, you are a kid and you are obviously retelling the story with so much confidence. But where did you get that confidence at that age? Like, have you always been like this? (laughs) Probably a mix of my mom, you know, like all of us seeing a resilient leader in our immediate circle has power and it has impact. And so she led our family with grace. She never complained. She worked her ass off. And to me, that was normal. You know, that was the baseline of how you should show up in the world. So I had a little bit of that. Um, She literally told me I could do anything. But I was also aware that I wasn't the most educated uh, in most of these circles. I've always been aware that I wasn't the most connected back then. But to me, success since I was an engineering major it was always this equation and the equation has the same variables for everyone but everyone has very different values of those variables and you can get to a 100 at the end of the equation in many many different ways and so while I recognized my weaknesses if you will or what I lacked I also super could tell what I was good at Mm -hmm. and I just played it up and so I didn't always know I could figure it out but I always knew I had the humility to ask questions and I was gonna work hard enough to make other people wanna be on my team and help me. And so I had this combination of humility and curiosity, but on the other side, that was always balanced with confidence and courage. And they kind of happened because of each other. What's the worst thing that happened in a franchise opening? Oh God. (laughs) I've had um, my team put in jail. For what? Multiple countries, just <laughs> breaking laws. Just <laughs> They're 19-year-olds like I was, and I was just a bit more mature and didn't get in trouble. Or let's say I didn't get caught for things that were getting in trouble, <laughs> and sometimes they did. And so getting trainers and team members out of jail is such so a time suck. Wood, we haven't had to bail our team <laughs> yeah. out of jail yeah. yet. Um, you know, and, and, and there were other things that weren't horrible but powerful business lessons. I remember when we went to Argentina and opened up. I was 20. It was my third or fourth opening ever and I was running the team and launching the franchise and setting up supply chain and doing the media and um, we had not done our homework on the culture. We were opening internationally but that didn't mean we were good at opening internationally 
And we didn't realize that our core menu at the time, it had a steak sandwich, it had baked beans. Um, we were opening a restaurant in the state capital of the world, and we had this super shitty flat iron steak. And it, it instantly, just having that on the menu, redefined the level of the restaurant to the consumer. We hadn't done our homework to understand what might be core to us that we think is unbreakable and unbendable in our concept, but that fundamentally will make us show up in a way we don't. And so we didn't flex the brand and the brand attributes to fit for the market. Beans meant you were a pauper's food. This was before um, the Argentinian recession at the time. And so having beans and steak and a few other things actually made us seem like this super Mm low-end fast food joint when we were coming in as a casual dining sports-themed restaurant. And I had to learn the hard way. We had equipment for it. We had bought the product. We had trained everyone and the employees were the ones who had to tell me that this was shitty food. And we had to redo the training. I had to do it all on the fly. Um, this is when we had beepers, not cell phones. <laughs> and so I couldn't really communicate back to head- headquarters and just had to make the call. And that happened over and over. Every country, there was something. There was something we did that I would think, God, if we had just done a bit more homework and asked the right questions, this would have been much more smooth. But you always figure it out. Your experience at Hooters is obviously very different than mm-hmm. what most people think of when mm-hmm. they think of a young woman working at Hooters. Mm-hmm. How do you respond when I'm sure you've gotten this yeah. before that Hooters is a brand that objectifies women? Yeah. What do you What do you say when your experience has been? You know, it's so interesting. Different? Being confronted with that point of view, first of all, it's like way less of a big deal now than it was over time. But and it's lost a bit of the cachet because of that. But at the time when I was opening restaurants, I remember I was opening a restaurant in Salt Lake City, Utah, one of the Hooters. And that was the most interesting opening of a Hooters anywhere in the world, more so than Shanghai, more so. I mean, amazing. And it was an amazing community and the restaurant did very well. But I was confronted when I was doing media for the restaurant where I'm used to people asking about how many employees are you hiring? Tell us about your employment program. What's your menu like? A woman confronted me and said, I get people putting themselves through school. I get people needing to be waitresses, but you're now on the corporate side. You are are perpetuating this concept that has socially acceptable female sex appeal at the center of the concept. Yet you say you advocate for women. I was also running women's organizations, still do, always have. And I remembered a piece of advice from a mentor. So this is back to how do I respond, which is when you first get criticized, assume immediately they're right. Um, It is not natural for people to do that, but do it. One, if you reaffirm that they're not, you'll focus more on the why than the what, Mm -hmm. and it's a a more heart-centered, more productive conversation. But if they are right, you prevent yourself from- God, I never do that. From getting your foot in your mouth. And, uh, and I thought, is she right? Uh, am I just doing harm on one side and fixing it on the other? And I realized very quickly by just thinking about that, that that wasn't the case, that I was so proud of what we had built. We had the best tuition reimbursement program literally in the country in retail. I put more women through school than any other business in the country. And there is no way that Hooters being sex appeal centered, even though it was a restaurant that only had eight, at the time, 18% alcohol sales, um, was doing more harm than the good that I was doing. And so I was so proud of that. And all the, there were so many other things beneath the surface that never went on a billboard, um, but that were the reality of what we were doing. My pride was great, but my gratitude for all the opportunities I received. You tell me what other company would have ever put a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old in charge of opening their businesses overseas? No one. So when you answered that question, did you take the advice that your mentor had given you? Like, yeah. did you say that she was right? Yeah, and then I, in I, didn't your say, head, I didn't say she was right, yeah. but I thought it. I said, God, is she right? Yeah. You know, I asked that. And I gave the space 
to entertain the fact that she might be right. And then I'd have to figure out how to deal with it publicly in the moment. Um, But I decided that she wasn't. But I recognized and said, you're absolutely right. This is a brand that is based on socially acceptable female sex appeal. It's not as bad as you think. And maybe it's not as good for everyone as I think it is. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And I, at the end of the day, I thought, you know, my pride in what we're doing and my gratitude for the opportunities I've received far outweigh my concern over what she thinks. And the fact that we did so much good for so many women, all the front of house employees are women. 80% of the employees are women. And so everything we did benefited women. And women kind of ran the company, which no one realizes. Since so many of the employees were women, that's who management was. One of the people we've had on this show is Christy Hefner. I'm curious, have Uh, you guys Never met her. I feel like you guys would be very different. so I've, as I'm listening to you, like, and, and you know, we talked about like what was in, what was, what did you have in you that gave you that confidence? Mm-hmm. Like, you're clearly an ambitious, driven person. That's an obvious. You also haven't worked at that many places. You stayed at place a long, you've stayed at places a mm-hmm. long time. So how do you balance that ambition with a sense of loyalty that clearly is a part of your character? Yeah, um, you know, with Hooters, I was recruited for years to go run other companies, especially as I got more public and even before the MBA. Um, I was just learning so much. My currency is learning. It's not title, it's not money. I give zero shits about those things. It's learning. And Hooters was fully vertically integrated, which most people don't know. We owned our own supply chain. We owned and built an airline. We owned our own hotel chain, you marketing company. Yeah, Hooters Air, look it up, it's a thing. It was the that. best idea and the worst idea. I'm so <laughs> glad when we sold it. Um, so the richness of my experience, my career path in the 15 years I spent there if you break it apart, looks like five people's individual career paths because of the different industries and the fact that it was privately held. So it didn't have the structure and the constraints and other things on it that call it more sophisticated companies did. Uh, And so that's why I stayed is because every year it was like a different company. And then I've been with Focus Brands for eight years, but I was president of Cinnabon for four. I was um, global president of the channels division for all six brands for two, and now I've been COO. Uh, and president for one. So different jobs. I just joined big portfolio companies so I can move around with them. And I get so much earned relationship credibility that I can be a speaker, a writer, an advisor, a consultant. I have many, many side hustles. And that's a little hard to do when you're starting over in a business constantly. So we're going to take a quick break to talk to you about what is going on at Skim HQ. We are very excited to be kicking off a huge campaign. It is called No Excuses, as in there are no excuses not to get informed and go vote. This is like our Super Bowl. In the 2016 election, we registered 110,000 people to vote. That was great. But this year, we want to go even bigger by getting 100,000 people to actually show up at the polls and cast their votes. So many millennials don't like the way the country is being run, but only 20% of millennials turned out to vote in the last midterms. We can do better than that. Your vote is your voice, and we want to help you speak up about the issues you care about. So head to theskim.com slash no excuses for nonpartisan information on the issues. We can also help you register too. That's theskim.com slash no excuses. Get informed and get registered and then go vote. Now let's get back to our conversation. We get asked all the time, should someone go to business school? Mm. You didn't finish your undergrad, but you did go to business school. Yeah. Why? Like, why did you feel like you needed that degree? I had a, a great friend who just touches base with me. I really don't believe in formal mentors for most people because it's so 
difficult and daunting to attain, but I do believe in mentoring moments. And I believe everyone can provide that. And so I ask anyone, uh, kind of anything, <laughs> uh, someone who's a waitress, someone who's a peer, someone who's an employee or a boss, and there's a woman who I always go to to ask these little mentoring moment questions. And I stay in touch with her. She stays in touch with me. And she called me a couple years into being an executive with Hooters. And she said, you know, everyone knows you in the industry. You run the industry associations, et cetera. But if you ever want to run something outside of hospitality, you're going to struggle because you're not even going to get through their HR processes. And she said, you need to think about getting a master's. And she said, I don't know if you know this, but it is possible to get a master's without a bachelor's. So back to the power of mentoring, just yeah. knowing that it's possible. I mean, possible. we had no idea, yeah. and I'm sure most people don't. It's, it's rare and it's hard yeah. because you still have to pass the GMAT and the GRE, and typically yeah. you have to pass it with a higher score than the minimum entrance requirements. You need to be smart. Um, did you do I a nighttime to, program? How did you do uh, it? Nights and weekends, okay. yeah. And, uh, and I got accepted into every program That's that amazing. I applied to. And so I had all the smarts, I had the capabilities, but I just lacked some of the traditional pedigree. And education hadn't started to really open up and become flexible in the way that it has now. It was the uh, end of 2010 when I graduated. And, uh, and, and so it was just her telling me. And she said, she said, not only will you not get through the HR filter, um, but there is a language that comes mm -hmm. from being at a more sophisticated level in business, particularly in finance. And I knew everything about operations. I worked every job in that business. I literally was central in growing that franchise. Um, but I didn't speak the language of finance, accounting, VC, venture um, at all. And so for me, I believe the benefit would be two things. One, learning what I didn't know about speaking the language of business in a way that would translate to those who would value our business. But I also had a question, which was, am I as good at business as my current experience would suggest I am? Or am I only good because I know everyone and I know this brand? And I wanted to figure that out. So when you went over to Cinnabon, did you, did you have that confidence where you're like, I'm gonna nail this? Or did you have any insecurities? I knew I could do it. Um, I knew I could do it for two reasons. One, it was in such a shitty place. It was this amazing brand, but it was mall and airport based at the end of the recession. Sales had been declining radically. And so on one hand, I love low expectations and being <laughs> underestimated. I'm like, just shining a light in the dark, yeah. you know, just a little bit up to go and it'll be positive. Um, but I also saw within it the fundamentals that I'd actually been executing on for over a decade. Franchise management, global business, brand management, staying close to the consumer, but doing it in a way that a young, much younger person, I was 31 when I became president of that company, um, leveraging social media and digital connections in a way very few brands were at the time. And so I had, I had a pretty good sense of what needed to happen. The question was, how long would it take? That's what I didn't know. I remember at that dinner that I met you at, I asked you, I said, you know, did you, when you went over to Cinnabon, did you ever just like go into like the refrigerator, the freezer, <laughs> wherever the food is made and just be like, oh my God, this is hard. Or like, <laughs> oh my God, what the fuck am I doing? Did you have a moment like that? I had one moment, um, which was probably the worst moment in my career to date, where I was 90 days into being president. I started out as COO for three months, became president. And the business was becoming a multi-channel business, not just brick and mortar franchises, um, but licensing, grocery, other retail. And when you go multi-channel, just like the experience I had 
jumping oceans, um, bringing hooters to other countries. There's just questions you need to learn to ask because your systems are never built for your next innovation. They never are. Innovation always outpaces regulation. Innovation always outpaces what exists in the corporation, and no matter how good you are. And I've learned from especially this big mistake to ask important questions about what systems won't work for the new thing we're doing and getting the team rallied around solving it. And essentially, we launched a product in a channel that moved much faster. The selling cycles for this channel were 90 days, not two years, like CPG. And from the time we decided to roll it out, it changed drastically. And I had communicated to our franchisees that it was one thing. And by the time it got commercialized, it was very different and highly competitive with what they do. And they formed a mob and started calling lawyers. And what it had looked like was that I had lied, that it was a bait and switch, that I told them something to make them calm and comfortable and then slid in a huge competitive commercial opportunity right behind it. Um, it was a crisis of confidence that for them and me. Um, there are a few things worse, I mean, outside of losing a life than losing trust. And I had instantly lost all the trust I had built. And, uh, and, and so those moments, they weren't just go in the walk-in and cry moments. I was crying every night I was home. I was just tired. It was emotionally exhausting because I had to both figure out the systems that broke down that allowed it to happen, fix it immediately, and manage the emotions, the stress, and the trust of the uh, franchise population. How do you emotionally come back from that type mm -hmm. of experience and that exhaustion that you're describing? Part of it is finding a bizarre joy in the fact that it's me dealing with this issue because a lesser person would not handle it with such grace. A lesser person would not handle it with such integrity because I technically had the right to do everything that we did. I could have and so other people would have gone to them and said, I have the right to do it. It's the right price. The right product is performing well. I'm sorry you don't like it. I'm sorry we didn't communicate it well. We're new at it, but deal with it. A lot of people would have, and I had people in my ear telling me to do that. Um, but that's not my style, and that's not the right thing, and I believe in long-term relationships, uh, being a productive achiever, not a destructive achiever. And, uh, and so I decided to handle it a completely different way. And, uh, and so I was happy that it was me. I was upset that it happened, but I was glad it was me. And finding joy in those moments when people are complaining or things are rough pulls out an inner strength that allows you to really shine. And then... Traction started to happen. They realized that there was a high integrity leader in place. And not only did it get better, that example and the way I and the team handled it was cited years later as examples of our integrity and our leadership. And it's the reason the franchisees got behind me to do far more creative things that basically doubled the EBITDA of the company in three years. What was it like to tell people not to eat your product daily. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about that a lot. Because yeah. like on one hand, Cinnabon, um, you know, not the healthiest thing mm -hmm. to eat daily. But saying that is being a good person, but not necessarily the best business decision. You know, I figured it was a brilliant business decision. One, because it was true, right? We're an indulgence. And it was all about rooting in our truth. I'm obsessed with the truth, with hearing it, with giving it, with seeing it, with communicating it, uh, and finding it as it changes and evolves. And the truth of that brand was that it was powerful because it was an indulgence. And suggesting anything else was going to put it in this icky, um, not right category that I wasn't comfortable leading. And so on national television, on blogs, on social media, I would tell people, don't eat it every day. It is full of sugar and fat, good sugar and fat. It's freaking delicious. Um, but it's a treat. It's an indulgence. And the more I said that, the more people who were critics silenced, right, because I'm saying what they're saying. 
And the more people who were giving themselves to indulge said, you know what? I get it. She's saying it's an indulgence, but it's so delicious if you're in the mood to be bad. Be bad with this. And it actually drove sales. And it built a culture of clarity and candor around brand positioning that is now spread throughout the company for different brands. You seem like someone who would be really good at negotiating for yourself. And I think that's a skill that we've struggled with that a lot of women in business and younger women getting into business honestly struggle with. Yeah. Do you give yourself a pep talk? Is this something you've always been good at? And I guess, am I right in thinking this about you? I am good at it, but I've gotten better over time. And the only way I know that is I look back and think, oh man, I should have, you know, asked for more. Oh man, I shouldn't have. You just, you learn. Um, Part of the reason I'm good at negotiating is I am so obsessed with the truth. And instead of trying to position and um, create an agenda that maybe leads to something, I do my best to lay out what I value and find out what someone else values. And it's the reason I've been able to build teams that are so good at licensing partnerships and franchising. That essentially is constant negotiation, constant partnership, understanding what value they bring, what value we bring, and agreeing on how you get paid for those things in order to grow the pie together. Um, So I've always been decent at it, but it's because I come with a huge degree of candor and humility, and that's refreshing for people. And so I come in and say, this is what I'd like. This is utopia for me. I love that line. What's utopia for you? If this ends up the best it can, what does it look like? I ask it, and I'm really comfortable saying that. And so much is revealed with such a simple question. And then you can get at the finer points that actually optimize wins for everybody involved. What makes you insecure? I have a 10-month-old. I didn't know that. Yeah, gotcha. Baby Ocean. He's the most amazing. Oh, you can follow Ocean Irvin on Instagram. No, He's wasn't. the cutest ever. <laughs> um, just wondering, am I doing it right? You know, everyone, like, is he okay? Is this normal? Is it? Nothing makes me insecure as much as being a new mom. Mm-hmm. And, again, am I doing it right? Are we doing it right? Am I spending enough time? And... Um, Am I being as thoughtful? Am I getting them around kids enough? It, you know, it's just a constant um, phase of self-questioning, which I appreciate. Does anything at work make you insecure? No. No, because work is, is not me. You know, I, I am who I am everywhere, but my purpose and my sense of self come from helping people realize they're capable of more than they know. And I'm just so... Um, at peace with whatever comes of work. I was a damn good bartender and waitress, and I could always go back to being one. And I loved it. It was one of my favorite jobs. We actually, we always say, we don't care where you went to school. We don't care how many degrees you have. But we uh, resumes where people show that they have experience working um, in any kind of um, hospitality service Mm -hmm. um, stand out to us. Because we're like, you can literally balance plates in the air, and you can you can handle some shit. And I'm curious when you, it's great to hear you say that because I think, you know, something that we were both installed in with our families was, you know, always make sure you can make your own living. And Mm -hmm. no matter what it is, like, if you can waitress, like, great. If you can babysit, like, good. You will always have something to do. Um, And I'm curious when you think about yourself, you know, when the first day that you walked into Hooters, like, Gee, what would you tell that, that girl today? What, what would you say, like, watch out for or, like, don't be nervous about this? You know, one of, the, one of the bigger mistakes I've made 
um, that maybe some younger coaching would have offered a little improvement on is, is back to that example I gave with Cinnabon where because I had so much leadership responsibility at such young ages, like radical massive responsibility, um, I often over-indexed on humility. I would go into the role and my peers were people who had been in business longer than I'd been alive. Literally, always. Um, less the case now, but up until the point I was in my early 30s. And, and so I would tell myself, don't be so respectful and so humble and so curious that you end up forgetting or missing the opportunity to fill up the responsibility that you have. Um, you know, when it came to that Cinnabon situation, I had sort of noticed some things were changing with the product that I had communicated, but I thought, who am I to question them, right? They've been around a long time. Why would they do anything that would hurt the business? And the reality is I had the humility to ask the question, who am I compared to them? But in that moment, I failed to have the courage to answer it, which is, you're the fucking president. And if you don't ask the questions, no one will. Um, and so I would go back and tell myself, remember to reframe adding value instead of saying, wow, I, I, I don't want to disrespect those that have come before me, um, as to I would be failing them if I didn't fill in the blank, question, speak up, fire that person, hire that person. I mean, I've got seven businesses I run now. I've got seven presidents that report to me, billions of dollars in sales. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for me to say, you know what, I'm just going to step back and let them. And now I have this theory of not on my watch. I would be failing them if I didn't poke, question, advise, fire, hire, et cetera. Um, so I would, I would tell my younger self just to remember that reframe success is not so much the balance of both doing cool things and succeeding and keeping people happy, um, but viewing failure as you're failing people if you don't bring your full self. You're failing people if you don't ask and speak up. I recently read the book Sweet Bitter. Mm. about working in the restaurant industry mm. and I was thinking about when I graduated college I waitressed and I made more waitressing that summer than I did in my first job yeah um yeah. did you ever have that moment of being 19 and I'm assuming making a lot of money mm -hmm. and thinking like this is this is great like, yeah. Oh, God, you're bringing cash home, right? right? If yeah. you need more money, you just pick up a shift. Money grows on trees when you're a waitress or a bartender in, a, in the tipped economy. Um, when I took my first corporate job, I was 20. And I went from making, I think it was close to $40,000 because I was literally working every night, every weekend as my last year as a waitress. I was only a waitress at Hooters for two years because I went to corporate mm -hmm. so quickly. I was paid $21,000 pre-tax. Yeah. Um, and it was a major shock for me. I was horrible at managing money. I went into debt because I was in this mindset of the money will come, right? I can pick, can't pick up a shift when you work in the corporate office. And so I went through a few years of a young, unsophisticated person that was not educated in money, um, really going, holy moly, I have to manage my life differently. Uh, and it taught me a deep respect for personal finance and spreading that education to other, to other young people. But yeah, I definitely had that. Yeah. So my last question, in doing prep for this, we read that you have been known to hide out in bathroom stalls <laughs> to listen to your employees' conversations. <laughs> Tell us more. Yeah, not so much these days. Um, uh, but when I was early on and on the corporate side at Hooters, I taught a lot of training and workshops to new franchisees and managers, uh, most of whom were women, many of whom were women. And on breaks, I would go to the bathroom. I genuinely had to pee. But then I would stay in the stall um, because I 
truly wanted to hear what they had to say. A lot of people gossip and Mm -hmm. talk about what's going on in their meeting or whatever in the bathroom. And I would never use it as a weapon. I would never come back and think, oh, they were, you know, Mm -hmm. speaking ill of me or that person. It was always a tool. I'm so obsessed with hearing the truth, giving the truth, being the truth. And it allowed me to come back from that bathroom break and miraculously address things that were going on. And so I just got good faster. I was like a constant human rapid prototype. How did you not take it personally? I mean, I'm sure you heard, if people are really gossiping, I'm sure you heard some not flattering things about yourself. So how did you turn that into resolve to just do better at work and not take it personally? I think it was so easy to do because it was about them. The class wasn't about me. Success was them learning and having a great experience. And so if that wasn't happening, that was failure. And so it was never, you know, it's highly personal on one hand, but it was never personal because my goal was them. If my goal was me, then I probably would have had a bigger issue with it. Um, But when your goal is just helping others be the best version of themselves, it changes who you are. It changes how you hear criticism. It, It makes you like seek it and crave it. Uh, and it emboldens you to just also be who you are very boldly. I deliver a lot of candid feedback. I am speak the truth of who I am. I'm a burner. I got married at Burning Man. I have tattoos. I'm just like a weird, hippie, oh, funky corporate executive. I didn't executive. know this side of you. You got yeah. married at Burning Man? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Check out the Learn Instagram. I, got oh, I, the I think I'm missing a lot <laughs> of your Instagram. We will. Kat, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Love what you guys are doing. Thank you, Kat. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.